Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the land of Tamal Hui, Coast Miwok people. I am Teresa. My blood is indigenous. It flows from Kiwa Pueblo, Laguna Pueblo, Jemez Pueblo from New Mexico. I was born in San Francisco and raised from birth by my adopted Coast Miwok mom. Today is my mom's birthday. Yeah, she would have been 96 years if she lived. But tomorrow the park turns 59 and the possibility of 20 more years of ranching hangs over us. My sister and I were raised on family stories of life on the bay. My mom loved to dig clams, open them up, wash them off in the bay and swallow them down. She loved to pick wild strawberries. She loved to pick wild teas. My mom prepared me for what my life might be as a dark-skinned native child and woman. She would tell me, the bigger they are, the harder they'll fall. In the 1950s, my family was evicted by ranchers, Lundgren and Turney. My uncle Vic fought back. He and his attorney, William Wysick, had verbal testimony that the Felix family was here before the ranchers. They were here at a time when San Francisco was Yerba Buena. The eviction ended our time at the Cove, but it did not sever our connection to the Bay. Our ancestral home, built by my Coast Miwok great-grandfather and his brother, waits for us. Waits for us to come home and bring our family voices and laughter. But you know what I think? I think we all want to go home. We want to return home to a park where we can learn about the Felix family and native resilience. We want to return home to a park where we'll learn the names and sites of Coast Miwok villages. must have been so beautiful before these people kicked us out. <laughs> we used to be full of the devil. We'd throw the chickens in the bay and we rode all the calves that they could, <laughs> we could find. I just tromped all over them hills. I knew every rabbit hole and everything else that was out there. But it was all an adventure. I never heard Mom refer to the cove as Laird's Landing. What did they call it? The cove. The Cove. The Cove. Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Von Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok peoples in present-day Marin County. This is also my home and where I grew up in the Point Reyes National Seashore on Tamales Bay. This special three-part series is about these Coast Miwok lands and the multi-generational story of a family and a cove that was inhabited for millennia by their Coast Miwok ancestors. But this is also a story about the indigenous peoples of California and the continuous erasure of their cultures, peoples, places, and memories. Back in the spring, I got an email from a friend about an article that had just been published in a local newspaper called The Pacific Sun by reporter Peter Byrne, 
about the Coast Miwoks' fight for recognition of their history. The story focused on Teresa Harlan, whose family had lived on a cove on Tamales Bay until they were evicted in the 1950s. I knew the cove, called Laird's Landing, well, and thought I knew its history. When I was a kid, a bohemian artist named Clayton Lewis was living at Laird's Landing. He had been as famous for his parties as he was for his art, and all the stories I learned as a kid of that cove were about him. Meanwhile, the histories I was learning in school and from the community about Point Reyes were stories of the discovery of the area by the seafaring explorer Sir Francis Drake in the 1500s, of ranching families that had settled in the region in the 1800s and thrived, of summer homes built in the early 1900s and the old Inverness families that had lived there since, of a national park established in 1962, and a progressive hippie and arts community that had blossomed in the 60s and 70s. The few mentions of the Coast Miwok and indigenous peoples of the area always placed them in the distant past, suggesting they were all gone. After Clayton Lewis died in 1995, the buildings at Laird's Landing went into disrepair, became overgrown with ivy, and were vandalized and covered with graffiti. When I had kids of my own, we had a small boat and spent many days meandering up and down the bay, stopping at all the beaches and coves many of them accessible only from the water. We'd often stop at Laird's Landing, which they had nicknamed Abandoned House Beach, to play on the rope swing that hung from a tree by the water's edge. When the kids asked me who used to live in the houses, I'd tell them about Clayton Lewis. As I read through the article that my friend had sent me, I learned that Teresa Harlan's great-great-grandmother, Euphrasia Felix, a Coast Miwok, had been living at Laird's Landing from as early as the 1850s. And that before that, the cove, as well as coves up and down the bay, had been sites of Coast Miwok villages and dwellings. But I had no idea that a cove and homestead I had seen hundreds of times throughout my life was, until 1955, the home of the last Coast Miwok family to live on the western shore of Tamales Bay. Learning this brought on a feeling of surprise, embarrassment, and then shame. Shame that I didn't know anything about this story. Shame that I had spent all those years on the bay, passing the cove or stopping there with my kids without knowing its real history. Shame that none of this was taught to me growing up here, and that through my ignorance, I was complicit in this story of erasure. After learning of Teresa's story and her work, Filmmaker and producer Adam Lofton and I reached out to Teresa, asking if we could meet and if she would want to share her story with us. And over the summer, Adam spent several months with Teresa, her husband Tiger, and their family, learning about the past and their hopes for the future. One of the things that struck us both when we read the article and that lies at the heart of this story was a quote from Teresa. There is a myth that the indigenous people simply walked away, and the land was empty, and the settlers came and took title to it and developed it, and there wasn't any contest. Teresa Harlan is working to shatter this myth and is set on bringing her family's memory and history back to Tamales Bay. Over the last few years, she has been working to bring recognition to what happened to her family 
asking why the recent settler history is more valuable than a Coast Miwok history that spans 10,000 years. She envisions Laird's Landing, which she has renamed Felix Cove in honor of her family's legacy, becoming a living cultural center, celebrating the indigenous practices of managing the land for the common good. And that perhaps both the community that calls the Bay home, as well as some of the 2.5 million visitors who come to the Point Reyes National Seashore each year, can learn not just about her family's history, but the broader California indigenous experience and the opportunity to honor and learn from the original inhabitants of this land. I'll hand things over to Adam. How often do you make the trip out here? Uh, we come out, I would say... Twice a month, at least? Yeah, two to three times a month. Um, we kind of relaxed a little bit after Superintendent Kinko promised that he wouldn't demolish the house while he was superintendent. We come out and see what kind of work they were still doing on it? Because before I came out, always kind of with the apprehension of like, am I going to see it torn down? So when we're driving, I think about how I was sitting in the back seat of my parents' car, just like I'm in your back seat right now. And we would drive up and go to Tamales, the Catholic cemetery, and visit my grandparents' grave and wind down. And my mom and dad would point out different places along the road about where our Auntie Perfy lived or point out across the bay where the cove is at. We had a Cadillac Seville. So yeah, it was a pretty smooth ride. Who would be in the car with you? Just me, my mom and dad. My sister's eight years older than me, so she was already on her way. Uh, so it was just the three of us. You know, driving out here, actually out to the cove is new because my mom she didn't want to come out and see it, and so I never got to experience it with her. You know, we never went on this road, even though my dad would point out, like, he would ask her if she wanted to come out, and she wouldn't even say anything. She'd just shake her head no. So it was always there. Every time I come out here, I think about that. I don't remember a real moment of learning about the eviction. I remember the family talking about, respectfully I say this, the hippie that lived out at the house. You know, I remember the house was no longer the family's, but I remember my mom and aunts talking about how there was this hippie living there and that it was a place they came from that they weren't allowed to be there. There was elements of it that were felt and maybe not spoken. So like my memories as a child on those drives, I knew that we weren't allowed to go to the house. It wasn't ours anymore. I knew that. 
Um, I know that that's why my grandfather came to live with us. Um, so I don't really remember, um, but I remember reading the Point Reyes Light article, and that's when I learned about all the details of the eviction, of who it was that evicted the family, when it was, my uncle's response going to court. Teresa shared with me half a dozen articles chronicling her uncle Victor Seuss's battle to save the 12-acre homestead at Laird's Landing in 1954. The articles describe Victor as slight, bespectacled, mild-mannered, and a quick but soft-spoken Indian. One of the headlines read, Indian fights in court for Tamales' home. After the death of Teresa's grandmother, Bertha Felix, in 1949, S.A. Turney, one of the owners of the 1,300-acre Turney Dairy Ranch, which surrounded the homestead, sent a notice of eviction to Victor, even though their family's presence at the cove predates the deed to the ranch. As a last effort to stop his family's eviction, Victor attempted to defend his home by claiming squatter's rights, a defense requiring that Persons must establish a claim by fencing in the land, live on the property for five years, and pay taxes on it. Victor's lawyer argued that he met all the provisions of the law except the payment of taxes, which was added to the law in 1878. If Victor could prove that his family resided on the property five years before 1878, he would be exempt from the tax provision. It was thus essential to establish the family's long history of ownership but Victor had no paperwork confirming that his great-grandparents were living on the cove since the 1860s. Without this, all they could rely on was the memory of an 80-year-old Coast Miwok woman living in nearby Bodega Bay, who had heard stories from Victor's grandparents about their family moving to the cove. The judge deemed her testimony hearsay and inadmissible, and Victor lost the case, along with his appeal three years later. In one article, there is the clearest image I have seen of Victor. His attorney stands over him as Victor is seated, his finger on a map pointing to the cove while he stares calmly, almost defiantly at the camera, hoping to share his story more widely and appeal to the court of public opinion. When Victor posed for this picture, he had not yet lost his home. So here we are at the top. This is the trailhead for Marshall Beach, but there's a little gate to the right of it, and that's that's the road. That's the road down to the cove. So we have to walk from here. Yeah, you get to walk about a mile downhill to the cove. You know, when I come down here, I just think about what I'm looking at, the plants. I'm looking for wild tea. I'm looking for wild strawberries. But I always think about my mom and her cousins coming up here, walking on this road, rain or shine. Sometimes she said they would get in cow pie fights on the way to school. And so then they would get to school, you know, smelling. They didn't care. They just had a good time. See that 
chain that blocks the road at the top where we had to park and start walking. Was there a time when you could just drive down here? Absolutely, yeah. Well, before it became parkland, you could drive down. I mean, people came down here all the time, and actually this road was used by the Lairds in the 19th century to load up their butter to ship out across the bay to go to get on the train to be sold in San Francisco. And all that happened while my family was here. You know, they say most roads are old Indian trails, so I would imagine this is an old, old trail too. The road that brings you to the Point Reyes National Seashore and ultimately the Cove is named after Sir Francis Drake, the 16th century English explorer who in 1579 stopped in a nearby bay to repair his ship, the Golden Hind. I've driven Sir Francis Drake Boulevard hundreds of times, and until a few years ago, never gave much thought to the fact that it is named after a swashbuckling, slave-trading, state-sponsored pirate who spent a mere six weeks near Point Reyes. The road starts at San Quentin, the oldest and most notorious prison in California. Near the prison stood, until recently, a statue of Drake that I remembered passing as a child. The western side of the road ends at Drake's Bay, or what the Coast Miwok call Tamal Hui. Why did we honor this man with the longest road in all of Marin County, traversing 43.8 miles from the San Francisco Bay to the Pacific Ocean? Why did we build a 30-foot statue in his honor and name a local high school after him? In 2020, as the reckoning with our racist and colonial past forced us to re-examine our historical heroes and the places named in their honor, that statue was taken down and the local high school changed its name. But the road, beach, and bay where Drake first stepped ashore still bear his name. Drake may have been the first European to have contact with the coast Miwok. A second encounter took place 16 years later in 1595, when Sebastian Rodriguez Cermeno's ship was wrecked while mooring in the bay. The brief time that Drake and Cermeno spent on the bay and the European observations that were memorialized in their writings and stories left a lasting impact on how we interpret the story of Point Reyes and Tamales Bay. It made me wonder what memories the Coast Miwok people shared of their first contact. Dewey Livingston, one of the historians out here who's known for his work with the history of ranching, shared a map from 1860 that shows native settlements along the coves. It's pretty much the same as when my family, when my mom was here. Um, there's people at Marshall Beach, people at this cove, people at Sacramento Landings, people at Fruit Tree Cove. There was people, native people all and up and down this western side of the shore. I was really happy to see that map because it further shows proof that Coast Miwok lived here on these coves. But, you know, when my uncle was fighting the eviction in the 50s, he didn't have evidence, he didn't have tax records to show proof that the family had been here before the ranchers. So I think it's just a matter of the time and accumulating the evidence to go back and show that Coast Miwok families were here 
predating the ranchers, even though we know it, that in this world we have to have documentation on paper for, uh, to convince people that the families lived here. This is an interview with Elizabeth Harlan, daughter of Bertha Felix and Arnold Campili, raised at Laird's Landing at Point Reyes National Seashore. The date is September 30th, 1996. The interviewer is Dewey Livingston for the National Park Service. The first time that I met Dewey Livingston was at my mom and dad's house. Uh, my mom called me and said, there's this guy coming from the park who wants to interview me about the house and about the family. And my understanding was that the park was going to try to get historic designation for the house. And Dewey was interested in what structures were there when she was a child that were already there built by her grandfather and his brother, and then what structures were built by her dad, Arnold Campili. <laughs> but you said, now you said your father built the houses there? Or no, the, the house, the house, that the, the old house that they, that they lived in was uh, my grandfather on my mother's side built that home, plus the one across the beach, on the, other, uh, the next beach. I wanted to learn, um, and I also wanted to get tease out some information that I knew my mom had shared with me that I wanted her to share with Dewey. And so I, I inserted myself in that interview, and Dewey was nice enough to allow that. I saw it as an opportunity to catch some of the stories that my mom had shared with me across the kitchen table, recorded and saved. The family home that my grandfather built, where that's where they were all raised, was right there. And then this other house where Clayton Lewis lived, where we used to live, uh, was my aunt's house, the blind aunt. Okay. See? And so your uh, grandfather built a couple of houses there on he, the bay. He built that house, but I know my dad added on a room, and then he uh, built all the buildings that were These are there. the last remaining structures built by Coast Miwok people. There's no other place like this. And this is a sign for me, a symbol of the persistence, the resilience, the integrity, the stronghold that Native people, that her Coast Miwok ancestors, her Tamal people had on who they are, where they're from. So as Native people were tied to the land, this is her land and this is where her great-grandmother lived and great-grandfather lived, Euphrasia Felix and Domingo Felix. So her family lived here before the structures were built. So from your earliest memories of living there, I'm interested in just what life was like around there. You, you say your father had a cow? Yeah, we had, a, we had a cow and a pig. We had chickens and ducks and rabbits. Who, who would he sell to? What do you mean sell to? Would he sell some of the animals? That no, he no, 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 no. He would just raise them for us, oh, okay. for the home. And then he planted a great big garden where we used to raise all our own vegetables. And then a lot of the, lot of the little herbs and stuff that used to grow on the, around there and the gum tree leaves. My mother used to take 
whenever us kids got a real bad cold and stuff, we'd, she'd go pick off the leaves and make a tea out of that and make us drink that for a cough or a bad cold. And then when we were uh, young ladies and, and uh, we had cramps, there was a little yellow button plant that grew out there just out in the yard in any place. She'd go pick that and make a tea out of them. You know, whatever time of day I'm here, I'm thinking, okay, what would my grandmother be doing right now? Would she be breaking the neck of a chicken and plucking it? Would she be making bread? Would she be in her garden? Would she be out berry picking? They lived the life that now people wish they had, which is off the grid and sustainable. The only thing they didn't have a lot of was cash for gasoline. But everything else, they could live here, and they did. We all dug clams, and then uh, we went fishing. You know, we had a boat. We'd go out and fish and catch some fish. And then you would also collect abalone, right? Well, we'd go abalone, and my dad and I, out at uh, Pierce Point, mm -hmm. climb down those cliffs mm -hmm. and stuff. I used to be the tomboy and followed my dad around like a little dog. You know, every place he went, I wanted to go. What did you like best? About we had, we had, we had all the hills we wanted to climb. I'll tell you, play around there. <laughs> we we used to we used to be full of the devil. We'd throw the chickens in the bay and watch you know drown half the chickens. <laughs> we rode all the calves that they could <laughs> we could find <laughs> when nobody was home. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. So we had a ball around there. <laughs> so that's all the stuff that goes on in my mind when I come down here. Was just the life that they had, which was family, food, work, and great stories. But amid that was also knowing that you're Indian and people are gonna say things to you or treat you a certain way. She was called names by one of her classmates, dirty Indians and all kinds of things. And um, that was her life. Well, in, in school, some of the kids were from ranches and things and they were probably pretty well off. Yeah, did they, they were, did they ever tease you about it or anything? Or, well, they used to. Well? They used to tease us. The only the teasing part came about when they used to start in with the Indian business. Uh -huh. You know, and that used to aggravate the heck out of me because I know there was a lot of time we almost killed Bud Hendren one time. <laughs> teased us, you know, calling us Indians and stuff. Tore the shirt off his back. The teacher had to stop us from fighting. You know, because. My two cousins had lived Her and her cousins, they just took that boy down. And he ran home crying. And his mom came back the next day and demanded for my mom and her cousins to be expelled. And her teacher said, no, he's been giving the girls a hard time. And they just got tired of it and stood up for themselves. So luckily, she had a teacher who supported her and didn't expel her. I mean, they took it and took it and took it and then Finally, they just, so she, that, that was my mom. I mean, I remember being one time in a bowling alley with her in the diner and someone at the counter said something. I didn't even hear it. And it was a man, two men sitting together. And she leaned out of the booth and tapped that guy on his back and said, I'm Indian. You have something to say about Indians? You want to tell me what you have to say? And he was like, oh, no, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. She could have just ignored it but it couldn't sit with her. And so that part I sort of have inherited. <laughs> and I never thought I would, but I did. Once in a while, you can't take it anymore. You just do have to 
kind of interject. So do you know any of the connection with the Coast Miwok and people uh, having lived there on Tomales Bay or, or in Marin County for, for centuries and centuries? Did, did your mother ever tell you anything about that? No. The only thing that we know of just the, the, the people that, you know, I grew up around that were there, my Aunt Rose, which is Cecil's mother, and uh, then there were all the other people that lived over in Marshall, the Indians that we knew, you know, like the Elgins. I don't know if you know any of them or not. I've heard of them. Yeah, and the Carrillos. They're a cousin, too. You know, I, I used to try to ask my mother questions about, you know, where they came from, and, and, and she would get mad at us and take us, say we were nosy, oh. you know, and, and a lot of things she couldn't remember either, you know. Yeah. So we just never got very far with her because she would tell us to shut up. Well, it's my job <laughs> to be nosy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. 1998 was the first time I ever came down here with my sister, Beverly. We came down here with Dewey Livingston after my mom died. It was a very windy day, and we, when we walked inside, we just noticed how protected um, and sheltered the house was, and so that made us think about our great-grandfather's and his brother's carpentry skills. My thought, I can't speak for my sister, but I thought about the stories my mom shared about growing up inside the house and how the family lived here. When I think back about how I felt, I think it's kind of like a visitor, like it, everything was new and unfamiliar. Maybe it was like finding something in your parents' closet that you never seen before, and you just carefully looking at it. That's how I felt. Because I'd seen pictures of it, but not ever experienced it. You know, I remember my sister and I looking at each other like, wow, you know, this is it. I mean, she was here. My mom and dad brought her here to visit family, but she hadn't seen it probably since she was a child and there was ivy growing all over. I think there was some hesitancy also because it so much had changed and Clayton Lewis um, died here. We were being very careful to also kind of like discover what was left of our family, what we could see that was left of the last time our family was here underneath all of the changes. That's what my work is about, is trying to pick up where my uncle left off, my Uncle Vic Souza, and make it familiar again for our family. So that's what I'd like to see. Yeah. What did your mom tell you about being an Indian? I mean, how did you know? What do you mean, how did I know I was Indian? Yeah. What did she tell you? Because she was Indian. Uh-huh, what did she say? She just, she just said that, you know, that we were Indians. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I mean, she didn't give us too much information about her family either because she, my mother never talked about stuff like that to us. Why do you think she didn't talk about things like that? I don't know. I don't know. My adopted mom and dad, 
but I'll refer to them as my mom and dad. They couldn't have their own children and they had adopted my older sister, Beverly, and so they um, wanted more children. They were notified by Catholic Social Services that there was an Indian baby um, available, and so my mom was very excited about having an Indian baby since she was California Indian. And so I was raised knowing I was adopted like I know my name. And my mom said that she did that deliberately so that no one would ever be able to hurt me by surprising me and telling me that I was adopted. And my mom also shared with me that my grandmother was a teacher and my mother was a nurse and my father was in the Marines. Her sharing that kind of set it up for me that, okay, you come from a very educated family. You also are going to be smart. You're going to do well in school. You know, we knew from the get-go that we were going to go to college. I think my, my mom shared about being Indian to me was through her stories, through her examples. You know, hearing her stories growing up as a little Tamales Bay Indian girl and what I might expect, how people might judge me or perceive me because I was Indian and what I should be prepared for. That's how I came to know a lot about her stories. We used to do all our shopping um, in Marshall, and we used to have to row across the bay to do that, and we used to have to row across the bay to get our mail, and we used to have to go early in the morning before the wind came up, because, you know, if you waited too long after 10 o'clock or so, uh, there it came. you had to fight the wind coming home. Mm -hmm. So you grew yeah. up with quite a, quite a crowd of people there. Yeah. There's eight of us kids. And out of all eight of them, I'm the only one that's left. They're all, the, other, all the rest are all dead, you know, all gone. Victor was the oldest, and then his brother Lawrence. And then there was Jean, Frank, Delphina, Gilda, Elaine, and me, um, the baby of the family. <laughs> when I was a child, one of my favorite things to do was to pull out my mom's photo albums lay on her bed, my mom and dad's bed, and look at pictures of the family at Tamales Bay. There was photos of my mom as a child, photos of my grandmother, my grandfather, aunts and uncles, photos of picnics, photos of them barbecuing abalone, photos of my grandpa tilling the land to put in his gardens. I never met my grandmother because she died in 1949, and I was born in 1960. But I knew how to imagine her. So when I got even older as a teen, when my mom would share stories about growing up on the bay, you know, I had faces. I knew how they looked when they laughed or when they smiled. I knew how the house looked with the family around it. I knew that there was always a dog. There was people in rowboats on the bay, my mom in a rowboat, my grandparents in a rowboat, an uncle and a dog in a rowboat. There's always someone in a rowboat in the bay. The cove, as much as the family members, is depicted in the photographs along with the family. So the beautiful pictures of my grandmother standing with her cow, 
the bays behind her as the backdrop. And I don't know this to be true, but I'm guessing that it was my Uncle Vic who was the photographer because he's hardly in any of the photographs. And then the photographs that he's in, they're a little blurry, a little out of focus. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that he was the photographer. You know, his connection to that house and to that cove ran through his body, his spirit and his soul. And I think that's why he fought so hard for it. He wanted to keep it. That's his only home. That's all he knew. So the family photographs now are playing a pivotal role because it's our documentation that we lived at the cove, that the family was of the cove. So these family photographs, some of them turn of the century and most of them World War II era, pre and post. That's our documentation that we were there. Well, I grew up in Napa um, and um, went to college, and I didn't go far. I went to Berkeley, so it was like 30 miles down the road. My mom cried, and I was like, what are you crying for? I'm down the road. And then, you know, as I started to take more Native American studies courses at Berkeley and hang out more with other Native students— you know, then it's like, no, family's everything. You know, your your mother and your father are everything. You need to, you know, acknowledge that. Um, I got a degree in ethnic studies. Found myself very much involved in contemporary Native American art. Found my way to curating exhibitions about contemporary Native American art. So that life for me, and especially writing about contemporary Native American photography was a direct link to one of my favorite pastimes, which was looking at my mom's family photo album when I was a child. The family photographs carried a significant meaning and story about indigenous survival, resilience, and how the family photographs were opportunities for people to see how Native people wanted to portray themselves, how they wanted to be remembered, and to document milestones, birthdays, holidays. And so they were in control of their own imagery. 80 years before Teresa attended the University of Berkeley, Alfred Krober, considered the founder of the study of anthropology in the American West, was appointed the school's first professor of anthropology. His interpretations of California history had a devastating impact on indigenous peoples, one that reverberates to this day. In 1925, Krober determined that the Ohlone people, whose unceded ancestral land the university was built upon, had simply gone extinct so far as all practical purposes are concerned. A lie that contributed to the federal government not recognizing the Ohlone tribe. One of Krober's students came to the same conclusion regarding the Coast Miwok people, writing that, a number of persons today have some Coast Miwok blood, but apparently no knowledge of native culture and no interest in it 
Effectively, the people and culture have disappeared. Even today, Western narratives about indigenous people often place them in the past and assume their extinction. A new generation of anthropologists, including indigenous anthropologists, are working to shift this colonial narrative of erasure. Practicing archaeologists and anthropologists like Peter Nelson and Sim D. Schneider, both citizens of the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria, a federally recognized and sovereign tribe of Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo, have published work that offers powerful examples of the resilience of the many Coast Miwok people who managed to survive the systematic oppression, introduced disease, and cultural violence of the Spanish missions. Their work shifts the dominant history of the Coast Miwok community away from the static interpretations of the mission-focused historical records and describes how their ancestors' resilience hinged on mobility, social memory, and place. For example, from the time of the Spanish missions onward, one of the few options for Native people to maintain a presence on their ancestral lands was to take jobs in which they were exploited and poorly paid as workers on farms and in mills. These jobs required them to travel between work sites across Tamales Bay and throughout Marin and southern Sonoma counties. Unbeknownst to their white employers, these trips often retraced ancestral pathways and helped link dispersed friends and family. This mobility reinforced cultural memories of place and Coast Miwok claims to those places. One of the places where Coast Miwok people found protection from the unrelenting oppression their people faced was in the many coves of Tamales Bay. Mostly uninhabited and rarely visited, these tucked away places became sanctuaries where they could practice their culture and pass on their place-based knowledge of how to live on the bay. Now, you moved away, you say, when you were 17? 17, uh-huh. That's when you got married. Right. Your mother and your father then continued to live at Yeah, Land. yeah. They lived there for a long, long time after. Uh, Until she got sick, and my brother Vic brought her over to us, and then when they found out she had tuberculosis, well, then she went to a sanitarium up in Santa Rosa. And that's where she died, was up there. My father kept living there with my brother, Victor Souza. Mm -hmm. They lived there together until they were forced, forced to move. Oh, so he lived there all the way through that, when they were in court? Yeah. Your brother was yeah. in court? Yeah. Okay. And then, did you ever hear anything about the place after they moved out? The only thing I would hear is, is from people that would uh, we would know that would go by there in boats and you know and take and tell me about the place and stuff and they say they told me there was somebody living there now but you know I never I never knew who and I, and I never did never did have any interest to find out who or go down there anymore to see. My sister one she went back like I say one time. She went down there with Virginia Jensen. Mm -hmm. They went down there. She said, I want to see the, what the place looks like now. So she went down there, and she, she was very disappointed in what she saw because it did not look the same, yeah. Yeah. you know, because she was saying of all the changes that they had made around there, too. Mm -hmm. And she said, they just don't look the same. And she said, I don't want to see it no more. That's okay. it. Well, as an adult, 
learning about the eviction, it made me angry about how unjust it was. Because Clayton Lewis came across the house and squatted there. And then he worked out a tenant agreement with the rancher. That made me mad, how he could live there. And we weren't allowed to live there because we were Indians. Um, That made me mad. And it still does. So, you know, love drives me, but the fact that our family lost that house, the land, means that we were denied a part of our history. We were denied to have family gatherings there. We were denied knowing that land like my mom knew it. We were denied knowing what teas to pick, what plants, what fresh oysters taste like out of the water from, or the clams right off the beach in front of the house. We were denied that. And, you know, knowing that the history of the United States built on stolen land, the history of California built on the murder and genocide and stolen land, and the history of Spanish missions. It doesn't matter that it happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's still relevant, and it's still impactful, and it's still the reason why Native people are fighting for their land. And the laws that were written and passed in state legislatures and by Congress to remove Native people, to disallow Native people from testifying against a white man in court, or allowing someone to take possession of Native children from their families to make them servants, house servants. All of that is still relevant. All of that contributes to the why my family was kicked out, the why they weren't allowed to live there. So, you know, history has real meaning because it wields its impact into contemporary existence. Join us in episode two as we explore the in-depth histories that define the Felix family's experience on Tomales Bay and the Coast Miwok civilization in the Marin Peninsula. This series is directed, narrated, and edited by Adam Lofton. It is produced by Adam Lofton and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Narration is written by Adam Lofton, Chelsea Steinauer-Scudder, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Original music by Matthew Atticus Berger, H. Scott Salinas, and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee. Sound mix by Matthew Mickelson. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our theme music is composed by H. Scott Salinas. Our original essays, films, interviews, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.